The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Targeting Elevated Cardiovascular Risk, Current Therapies and New Horizons in Hyperlipidemia Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash GVK860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Find out how much you know about optimal management of hyperlipidemia through a simple three-step process in this self-assessment activity comprising five clinical questions. First, answer the baseline question to evaluate your knowledge and skills. Next, review the supporting evidence shared by Dr. Wright. Finally, answer the question again to demonstrate what you've learned. Each correct answer automatically counts toward post-test completion, which means that getting your CME credit is fast and easy. Hello, this is Dr. Scott Wright from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome to this educational activity on current and emerging therapies for hyperlipidemia. Our goals for today are to review the updated treatment goals for LDL cholesterol and the role that lipoprotein A plays in the pathophysiology of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Also, to learn the right way to screen for lipoprotein A and why some old rules of thumb really shouldn't be used anymore to evaluate the safety and efficacy of lipid-lowering therapies, especially their effects on lipoprotein A, and finally to gain new insights into designing individualized treatment regimens for hyperlipidemia. Across all age spectrums, elevations of LDL cholesterol are proportionally associated with increased risks for developing cardiovascular disease, or ASCVD, as well as having a myocardial infarction. This slide is really important because it demonstrates that as one gets older, into the 70s and 80s, those risks are even higher than we see in middle-aged and younger adults. And I think makes the point that we have to treat even the older patients with elevations of LDL cholesterol to reduce their very high cardiovascular risks. Please remember that about three out of four individuals with an elevated 10-year risk of ASCVD are not using statin therapy for primary prevention. And nearly two-thirds of individuals with an atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease diagnosis are untreated with any lipid-lowering therapy within five years of an ACS. And these gaps worsen among women and ethnic minorities and really reflect that patients at high and very high risk are the low-hanging fruit for intensified lipid control. Just as a reminder, those who are at very high risk, those with recent acute coronary syndromes or recent strokes and other risk factors in combination, have a new very low threshold of an LDL of less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. This new threshold is established by a number of randomized clinical trials targeting what we felt were previously high-risk, now very high-risk individuals, and treating LDL to below 55 and seeing a substantial benefit and improvement. Patients at high risk, those who have a 10-year risk of greater than 20% or a CAC score of greater than 100, have an LDL target now of 70. And those for whom we are trying to do primary prevention or have type 2 diabetes with a 10-year risk of, say, less than 20%, but above 7.5%, or those with any coronary calcium, but a score summed less than 100, now have a LDL threshold of 100 milligrams per deciliter. So three numbers to remember, 55, 70, and 100, which are the new thresholds for patients at very high risk, high risk, and primary prevention. Now, these targets are sometimes tough to get to because they will require more than one lipid-lowering therapy, but these targets are supported by European, U.S. Diabetic, and American College of Cardiology and AHA guideline statements. The therapies we have today 
which are approved for lipid lowering, really work through a variety of mechanisms, which then allow multiple therapies to be used in a way that is integrated or complementary so that we can reduce LDL to extremely low levels. There are two groups of drugs which block the synthesis of LDL cholesterol, including statins that we are all familiar with, and then a recently approved compound called pipidoic acid or citrate lyase inhibitor. I think we're all familiar with statins, and pipidoic acid works just a couple of steps ahead of where statins typically work. Azetamide works in a very different mechanism because it reduces cholesterol absorption in the proximal small intestine by blocking the Neiman-Pick C1-like-1 factor. And finally, we have therapies which really reduce PCSK9 levels and lower cholesterol that way. Now, why does lowering PCSK9 reduce cholesterol? Well, here's why. When LDL and PCSK9 are bound together, and then that pair bind to an LDL receptor on the liver, as the cholesterol is internalized into the liver, there is not only degradation of the cholesterol and the PCSK9, but the presence of the PCSK9 is like a kill signal so that LDL receptor is destroyed and the liver has to synthesize a new one and express it back on the surface. If LDL binds the receptor without PCSK9, then the LDL is internalized, it's digested or dissolved, but the receptor is not touched and it goes right back to the surface. So anytime you lower PCSK9, you increase the number of LDL receptors at the surface of the liver, and by doing so, you actually lower plasma LDL. The monoclonal antibodies work by just binding PCSK9 circulating in plasma, while enclycerin works through the RNA silencing complex to interrupt the transcription of message RNA for PCSK9 so that the liver cell doesn't express the PCSK9 protein. Well, with all that biochemistry behind us, how well do these drugs work? Well, statins, as you know, lower LDL cholesterol 40 to 60%. The agents azetamide and benthopidoic acid, about 20%. And then bile acid sequestrants, even less. But bile acid sequestrants are so poorly tolerated that most patients just can't stay on them for more than a few days. So I don't use them in my practice, and I bet you don't either. Now, the PCSK9 drugs actually lower cholesterol by 50 to 60% and are really the go-to therapies now when we need to lower LDL generally to less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. It's going to take often two to three medications to get there, and it's oftentimes just really efficient and simple to use a statin with a PCSK9 drug. Now, lipoprotein A is a particle similar to but not identical to LDL, and it has a number of regions on it called Kringle regions that work in conjunction with LDL to make LDL even more potent. And then those Kringle regions can promote thrombosis, can promote inflammatory changes in the plaque, and really elevate cardiovascular risks. LPA is both a risk factor and a risk enhancer, in my opinion, for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And in fact, the recent scientific statements from the American Heart Association now describe it as a common and independent risk factor for ASCVD. There are a few ways to measure for lipoprotein A. The best way to measure it is to use a specific blood test that's calibrated, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Now, there are ways to screen for lipoprotein A, based on LDL cholesterol to make assumptions. I think the Dahlen formula is one of those. But really the best way to assess it is just to do a direct measure with it. 
Now, why are we interested in measuring it? In younger adults, especially men under 55 and women under 65, we should be thinking about risk factors beyond LDL cholesterol, and one of those is lipoprotein A. It's also very appropriate to measure lipoprotein A in patients that we intensify the dose of a statin or add a second LDL-lowering therapy, and the LDL just doesn't fall that much, and that's because we're not really dropping the lipoprotein A with it. And if you have a family with a lot of pre mature atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, you may want to incorporate lipoprotein A as part of your cascade testing. Now, lipoprotein A should be measured with an isoform insensitive assay. There are different isoforms of lipoprotein A. Let's not confuse today's discussion by trying to identify all of them because we don't even know what all of them are. But you need a assay that is typically reported in nanomoles per liter. Now, some will report it as milligrams per deciliter, but the very excellent labs now in almost all of the elegant science with lipoprotein A really looks at risk in terms of nanomoles per liter. So if you have a choice with regard to testing, go with an assay that measures it in nanomoles per liter. There are ways to indirectly calculate the degree of lipoprotein A elevation based upon the LDL because you can assume that about 30% of the LDL is bound to lipoprotein A. But even even that assumption is now not true, that the latest science would say that it could be 10 to 70 percent. So let's not use the old equations to do that, but instead let's measure lipoprotein A along with LDL independently and then look at what those values are. And just to remind you, lipoprotein A itself elevates cardiovascular risks by 25 to 30 percent. And with elevations of LDL, you see an almost doubling of ASCVD risk in patients. If you look at population risks that have been reported, and there are a number of these, this is one example of several, you can see that a degree of lipoprotein A elevation, while it may appear modest, is adjusted with almost a one and a half times increase in risks of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease based upon data from the Copenhagen General Population Study. And a lipoprotein A even higher almost doubles a risk. So there is some degree of increased risk across almost any degree of elevation of lipoprotein A, but even modest increases in risks are associated with a 25 to 50 percent additional risks of developing adverse cardiovascular events. Now, what levels of lipoprotein A are considered high risk, right? Well, the AHA in 2018 and 2019, along with the American College of Cardiology, used a threshold of 125 nanomoles per liter. In 2022, I think they became a little more cautious and said, well, we think that the risks are probably starting at a lower level of lipoprotein A and didn't specify. And I think that's because the most recent research is going to show that almost any degree of LPA elevation carries some additional risks. And the NLA in 2022 recommended a threshold of 100 nanomoles per liter. So what can I tell you as a risk to use? Well, certainly 100, maybe even lower. And I think you just have to individualize it. And if you have a patient, especially an African-American patient who's 90, 85, or 90, they're going to be elevated. And maybe a Caucasian population above 20 or 25 nanomoles per liter will start to see some elevation in risk. Now, prior to now, we've really not had therapies to lower lipoprotein A, so we've not put a lot of attention and time on these. But now we're soon to see an era 
emerge where we are going to have approved therapies. Now, a couple of things to just point out that I think you need to just hear me say. One is that statins increase lipoprotein A synthesis. I don't know why that's the case. Statins do so many wonderful things, but they increase lipoprotein A by about 10%. So we cannot use a statin to lower lipoprotein A, but we can use a statin to drive LDL exceedingly low to try to take away some of the sting of any elevation of lipoprotein A. Azetamibe and fibrates have no impact on lipoprotein A, and so really are not therapies you should consider in someone unless you're really targeting triglycerides or LDL. Niacin does decrease lipoprotein A, and it works through reductions in intracellular cyclic AMP levels, but there are so many concerns now with niacin that I just do not recommend it as a targeted therapy for an elevation of lipoprotein A. There was a time in my career I prescribed it, but after the HPS Thrive study, I stopped. Now, PCSK9 drugs work to lower lipoprotein A 20 to 25%, whether it's a monoclonal antibody or a small interfering RNA like in glycerin. And they do this by increasing the catabolism of lipoprotein A as well as decreasing production. So today, our best therapy for lowering lipoprotein A is a PCSK9 drug, but again, you're only going to get it lowered by 20 to 25%. Now, if you really have a markedly elevated lipoprotein A and you have a center within appropriate distance to your patient who can do apheresis, this is probably the most potent way now to lower it. With apheresis, we can see a 60 or 70% drop in lipoprotein A. And there are a few centers in the country that do that. As I said earlier, statins increase lipoprotein A by 10%, maybe even up to 20. Zetamibe does not lower it at all. Apheresis is our most potent therapy today by lowering it 60 to 65%. And enclisiran has been shown to lower it 20 to 25% as well. So if we want to pharmacologically treat an elevated LDL with an elevated lipoprotein A, we have to use a PCSK9 drug. We do not want to use statins to treat an elevated lipoprotein A. We should only use the statin as part of an LDL lowering strategy. Zetamibe and mipopidoic acid are not to be used. Neither is niacin. The drugs currently under investigation, which lower lipoprotein A, are several, and two that we want to talk about today are apelicarsin and olpasaran. These drugs really dramatically reduce lipoprotein A levels. You can picture this by thinking about it like this. Just as zetamibe and diet can lower cholesterol and LDL 20-25%, potent statins can lower it 40 to 50 to 60 percent. Well, these drugs are going to be the potent LPA lowering agents. Pelicarsin has been shown to lower lipoprotein A 80 percent, Olpasarin 90 percent. Both of these have the galnec moiety on them, which means that they are targeted to go exclusively to the liver and they are subcutaneously given. Pelicarsin once a month, Olpasarin every three months. These are in phase two and phase three studies, and these studies will be reported out likely in the next couple of years. Now, here's a schematic that you have probably seen with lots of lipid-lowering therapies showing where these drugs work. Uh, they are both taken into the liver through the acyaloglycoprotein receptor, the ASGPR receptor, which is expressed over thousands and thousands of years on hepatocytes, a very stable receptor on the liver. Lots of therapies now, almost any liver-targeting therapy uses Galnec to target that receptor, which then allows the medication to be absorbed. One of these is a small interfering RNA, that's olpasarin, and it works again through the RNA silencing complex to lower the production of lipoprotein A or the translation of the message to produce lipoprotein A. And the pelicarsin compound is an antisense oligonucleotide, which then works after 
modulation by RNAs to then inhibit the translation of the message RNA through a slightly different mechanism, but equally as potent. And then there are two other compounds which are in phase one testing now. So it sure looks like that we will soon have phase two and phase three data out on Olpacerin and Pelicarsin, and then we will have some phase one and phase two data out soon. So we should have a lot of opportunities to have therapies which will help our patients by lowering lipoprotein A. And by doing that, we will then reverse the pro-atherogenic and pro-thrombotic and pro-inflammatory and pro-oxidative consequences of lipoprotein A and its many kringles. And we can hopefully impact long-term cardiovascular risks and ASCVD progression. Here's data from the Olpasrin Phase two trial called the OCEAN study showing, you know, at the doses now being tested, an 80 to 90% reduction in lipoprotein A. These are really dramatic reductions in lipoprotein A, very, very potent. 75 milligrams every 12 weeks lowered lipoprotein A, 95 to 97%, 225 milligrams every 12 weeks, 100.9 to 101%, and then 225 milligrams every 24 weeks, 86 to 100%, with similar risks of adverse events across across all dosings. And again, like the PCSK9 drugs, the most common side effects are injection site reactions. Now, the Phase three Ocean trial is an expansion study currently aiming to enroll about 6,000 participants to look at the impact of therapy on major adverse cardiovascular events. The key inclusion criteria are adults generally aged 18 to 85 with a history of ASCVD defined as either myocardial infarction and or coronary revascularization plus a single risk factor and then a lipoprotein A of greater than 200 nanomoles per liter at screening. So very high lipoprotein A's. Key exclusion criteria are listed here for you to see. You can see that it's very typical of most trials and then they're going to be testing a dose of olpasterin against placebo given every 12 weeks for four years with a primary outcome of time to the first coronary heart disease death, and the combined input will include that or MI or urgent coronary revascularization to be completed in a little less than two years' time. Well, let's look at the Pelicarsin Phase 2B trial, which used an entry criteria of ASCVD and then a lipoprotein A of greater than or equal to 150 nanomoles per liter, slightly lower lipoprotein A measures than in the previous trial we talked about. And the data on the left demonstrate a dose or intensity of dosing reduction in lipoprotein A depending on the dose of Pelicarsin chosen, as well as the frequency of administration. And these early trials are largely done to find the dose that works the dose at which one starts to see is an asymptotic reduction that maybe not going any higher would be a benefit, and then trying to find really the lowest, safest dose to use. And you can see on the right that placebo-adjusted change in lipoprotein A concentration shows that really there was up to an 80% reduction, whether you use 20 milligrams every week or a 70% reduction if you use 60 milligrams every four weeks. Now, some of you may work at hospitals or centers where there are adjustments being made using the Dolan formula or other correction formulas for LDL coupled with lipoprotein A. So let's look at this as an example, looking at pelicarsin. So the patient's LDL measures initially at 76 milligrams per deciliter. And then once the LPA and LDL corrected are analyzed or are quantitated, shall we say, the lipoprotein A appears to be about 14 milligrams per deciliter, the LDL about 62. And then after a month of therapy, there's an even slighter reduction in LDL, just down from 62 to 55, but a dramatic drop of almost 70% in lipoprotein A. Now, this seems pretty slick, doesn't it, that you can calculate the percent of LPA and LDL, but the next slide really should help us to realize that that's really no longer an accurate way to do it. 
When we look at laboratory-reported LDL changes with dosings of pilocarsin and then correct using something like the Dolan formula, you actually are seeing changes in the LDLC that go up, which really are not happening when you actually direct measure it using direct measures of lipoprotein A and then have corrected LDL cholesterols, which appear to show then a dose dependent reduction using varying doses of pelicarsin and follow in synchrony with that trocline at LDL or drops in total apoprotein B as well as non-LPA associated apoprotein B. So I think take home message from this slide and the previous one, which are both quite complex and you know really are for people who are sort of lipid nerds rather than practicing clinicians, is that pelicarsin works by directly lowering lipoprotein A and doesn't have too much of an impact, sort of neutral to mild lowering of LDL cholesterol, and that you really need to use laboratory tests that directly measure lipoprotein A as well as LDL. And if you have a laboratory like the one that I practice in, you can also get measures of lipoprotein A associated LDL cholesterol. Well, the HORIZON trial is the one that's really going to test pelicarsin for outcomes. And the key inclusion criteria for this trial are adults, again, aged 18 to 80, similar to the previous outcomes trial we talked about with a different agent, a history of ASCVD defined as an MI, a stroke, a significant symptomatic PAD, an elevated lipoprotein A of greater than 175 nanomoles per liter or equal to that at screening. And they're using pelicarsin monthly at 80 milligrams against placebo for about four years. They've enrolled or will enroll a little over 8,000 patients. The key exclusion criteria are those similar to almost all lipid studies. And then the primary outcome will be a time to first major adverse cardiovascular event defined as cardiovascular death, MI, stroke, urgent revascularization requiring hospitalization with an estimated completion date of May of 2025. So I think the key takeaways are that in the interim until LPA-specific therapies are available. PCSK9 drugs can be used as an interim strategy. They reduce LPA by 20 to 25%, while at the same time they lower LDL at least 50%, sometimes more. Pelicarsin and opacerin are drugs currently under investigation, which really dramatically reduce lipoprotein A levels. And those are really the limits we have for treating LPA until we have more effective therapies that are FDA-approved. But these therapies are in the pipeline. They're in cardiovascular outcome trials. And I think in a year or two, we're going to have some exciting data to look at and to think about using in our patients. Sometimes we, despite our best intentions, just do not understand or find it challenging to risk stratify patients. We're not clear in our own minds about which patient subgroups might benefit from intensive lipid-lowering therapy. We can read guideline documents, and there are at times discrepancies, right? There's also the whole thing of clinical inertia, or we run into challenges with their insurance, or we have limited time to discuss with the patient how we can help them with an additional agent. And really, sometimes we just don't have enough training in and recognizing higher risk patients and perhaps heterozygous FH among cardiologists, especially pediatric cardiologists, who are just now recognizing they need to think about treating dyslipidemia. Of course, patient factors, we all understand that. We don't always take medicines as prescribed. We might be skeptical, or patients are certainly skeptical about goals or the need for treatment. They're worried about safety. Every day I see a patient with an elevated lipid and want to prescribe a statin. I have to go through and explain why I think the drugs are safe, why I think there will be a benefit. I think patients, like all humans, can underestimate their personal risk of a recurrent event. And sometimes people are just unaware about why we prescribe the medicine. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? We talk to patients, we think we're explaining it and maybe we are, but they don't hear us. 
Patients worry about statin intolerance, and we worry about statin intolerance. Well, what is it and what is it not? You know, statin-associated rhabdomyolysis is really rare. It can cause acute renal failure. It can cause myoglobinuria. You see a CK that's elevated to 40 times the upper limit of normal, and it's about one out of every 100,000 patient years. Statin-associated myopathy is much more common. It's unexplained muscle pain or weakness, frequently with a CK above 10 times the upper limit of normal. That's often a diagnostic requirement, and its incidence is about 1 in 10,000 patient treatment years. Statin intolerance is something that will fall between no symptoms and some of the others, right? It's patients who have muscle soreness, aches or cramps, fatigue or weakness. There's often no elevation of CK. You're never sure it's caused by the statin, but when you stop the therapy, it goes away. And when you restart it, it comes back and you see it in more than one statin. And most insurance companies now require us to try at least two statins separated with at least four weeks off to re-challenge a patient. And what do we do when we experience statin-associated muscle symptoms? Well, this is a great branching algorithm from the National Lipid Association. And what we recommend is that you give the patient a bit of a statin holiday, and then you lower the statin dose or you switch to a different statin. Or you can add a non-statin like bepipedoic acid or zetamibe to the statin. Or you could simply try lipid-lowering therapies but not use a statin. In our own practice, we often try low-dose resuvastatin infrequently, one, two, three times a week. And if patients are going to be extremely athletic, they need to have washout periods of this therapy. And many patients, and I had a text message today from a prescriber asking me what I thought about patavastatin, and some patients tolerate it. You can try a low-dose fluvastatin. I tend to not use simvastatin. Most of my patients seem to have more muscle aches and pains than with a torva, sort of the least with resuva and prava. And the non-statins we can use are the PCSK9 drugs, such as alirocumab, evolocumab, and glycerin, or we can use azetamibe or bepipedoic acid. And again, for completeness sakes, we always recommend bile acid sequestrants. I just don't think patients tolerate that. Now, there is a treatment burden with therapy that involves pills versus injectable therapies like the monoclonals and glycerin. So in a given year, patients have to take 365 doses of a high-potency statin or any oral therapy like azetamibe or bentopidoic acid. If you need a second drug besides a statin or if you need an alternative to a statin, a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody requires 26 injections a year on average. I know there are ways to do it 12 times a year, once a month, but almost all patients choose every two weeks. Or you can try a small interfering RNA in glycerin and following the initial dosing on days one and 90, you can get by with two injections a year at your office or at an infusion center. So your choices really are treatment 365, 26 times a year, or practically twice a year. Now, all of the PCSK9 targeting therapies have favorable effects on plaque characteristics and progression. A number of studies have tested alirocumab and evolocumab, as well as in vitro and preclinical studies within glycerin, have all shown that plaques can be favorably altered, whether the atheroma volume is reduced or the fibrous cap in thickness increases, or there's just some change in it. But that's likely one of the mechanisms of benefit of why lowering LDL with these drugs reduces clinical events. And this should be an incentive for patients to then be on these therapies and stay on them to get that benefit. Now, I have a lot of experience with glycerin, having been one of the investigators globally with it and the principal investigator for the Orion 10 trial. And we pooled our investigator experience with glycerin, looking at its safety analysis, looking at data from Orion 1, 3, 5, Orion 8, Orion 9, 10, and 11, and compared the safety data in those treated with glycerin to those treated with placebo and those who had up to 18 months of placebo-controlled trials. Now, we had over 
9,900 patient years of exposure to enclisiran, about 2,600 patient years of exposure to placebo, over 20,000 injections with enclisiran. And we saw that there were really no new safety signals at all. There were no increases in treatment emergent adverse events, no safety problems with liver, blood counts, kidney function, glycemic control, muscle elevations of CK in those who are on enclisiran versus placebo. Even in a safety analysis looking at major adverse cardiovascular events, we saw numerically fewer reported adverse events in those on enclisiran versus placebo, really confirming that lowering LDL with enclisiran is likely to show a beneficial signal with regard to reductions in MACE in the three ongoing outcome trials. Now, this is not a outcomes data, but it's a safety analysis. So what are the best practices to get access and get these drugs approved for our patients? Well, thorough documentation is the key to success. Many insurance companies now require 12 weeks of azetamide before they will consider escalation to a PCSK9 like enclisiran. You need to document the degree of LDL reduction and the fact that the patient has not met the goal that you are trying to get them to. And then don't be surprised if you have to do appeals, especially for enclisiran. That's been my experience as a prescribing physician. One more quick note, we can often use non-HDL cholesterol as a good second measure to use, especially when the triglycerides are above 200, and you must use it when they're above 400, because the calculation of VLDL by the Friedewald equation when triglycerides are elevated will result in an underestimation of LDL because LDL is calculated as a subtraction from all the other lipoproteins. And sometimes we are simply misled that our patient is at goal when their actual LDL of direct measured would not be 70 or 80, it would be 100 because the triglycerides are elevated. And so you have options, can do direct measures of LDL, or you can use the Martin Hopkins equations for greater accuracy in measuring LDL cholesterol. Well, this concludes our discussion today. I hope you found the activity informative and helpful in understanding the clinical implications of an elevation of lipoprotein A and have a renewed appreciation for how we can use currently available lipid-lowering therapies to really begin to address this risk-enhancing factor that lipoprotein A is and have a better grasp of the therapeutic characteristics of potential future-specific treatments targeting lipoprotein A. This activity is certified by the University of Florida College of Medicine. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash GVK860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation.